chapter 14, the impairment clause, no law impairing the obligation of contract shall be passed. The purpose of the impairment clause is to safeguard the integrity of valid contractual agreements against unwarranted interference by the state. As a rule, they should be respected by the legislature and not tampered with by subsequent laws that will change the intention of the parties or modify their rights and obligations. The will of the obligor and the obligee must be preserved. The obligation of their contract must not be impaired. It should be stressed at the outset, however, that the protection of the impairment clause is not absolute. There are instances as will appear later when contracts valid at the time of their conclusion may become invalid or some of their provisions may be rendered inoperative or illegal by virtue of supervening legislation. Contract, the term contract as used in the impairment clause refers to any lawful agreement or on property or property rights, whether real or personal, tangible or intangible, the agreement may be executed or executory. The parties may be private persons only, natural or artificial, or private persons on the one hand and the government or its agencies on the other hand. It includes franchises or characters granted to private persons or entities like an authorization to operate a public utility but it does not cover licenses save for operation of a liquor store or a cockpit as this involved grants of privileges only that are essentially revocable. Neither does it include the marriage contract, which more than a mere agreement between the spouses is regarded as a social institution subject at all times to regulation by the legislature and to change of the original conditions. The subsequent law allowing divorce would be applicable to marriages previously solemnized under a law prohibiting their dissolution. Also, as earlier observed, a public office is not a property right and therefore cannot be the subject of a contract between the incumbent and the government. The office itself, if created by statute, may be modified or even abolished, or any of its incidents may be changed by the, re by the reduction of the term or the salary. The exception already noted is where the salary has already been earned in law, uh, in which case it will be deemed a vested property right that cannot be withdrawn or reduced by retroactive legislation. Law, as used in the impairment clause, law includes statutes enacted by the national legislature, executive orders and administrative regulations promulgated under a valid delegation or of power and municipal ordinances passed by the local legislative bodies. However, it does not include judicial decisions or adjudications made by administrative bodies in the exercise of their quasi-judicial powers. To impair the law must retroact so as to affect existing contracts concluded before its enactment. There will be no impairment if the law is made to operate prospectively only to cover contracts entered into after its enactment. Obligations The obligation of the contract is the vinculum juris, example the tie that binds the parties to each other. The obligation of a contract is the law or duty which binds the parties to perform their undertaking or agreement according to its terms and intent. In a contract of loan, for example, the obligation is the duty of the lender to extend the loan and of the borrower to repay it according to their stipulations. Impairment. Impairment is anything that diminishes the efficacy of the contract. In the above example of the contract of loan, 
there will be an impairment of its obligation if by consequent law the principal of the loan is reduced or increased or the period of payment is shortened or lengthened or conditions or added or removed or the remedies for the enforcement of the rights of the parties are completely withdrawn. The degree of the diminution is immaterial as long as the original rights of either of the parties are changed to his prejudice. There is an impairment of the obligation of contract. But in the case of remedies, there will be impairment only if all of them are withdrawn, with the result that either of the parties will be unable to enforce his rights. Under the original agreement, there will be no impairment, in other words, as long as a substantial and, eff and efficacious remedy remains, and this rule holds true even if the remedy retained is the most difficult to employ and it is the easier ones that are withdrawn. Limitations Despite the impairment clause, a contract valid at the time of its execution may be legally modified or even completely invalidated by a subsequent law. If the law is a proper exercise of the police power, it will prevail over the contract. And to each contract are read the provisions of existing law and always a reservation of the police power as long as the agreement deals with a matter affecting the public welfare. Such a contract that has been held suffers a congenital infirmity and this is its susceptibility to change by the legislature as a postulate of the legal order. The legislature cannot bargain away the police power through the medium of a contract, neither may private parties fetter the legislative authority by contracting on matters that are essentially within the power of the law-making body to regulate. Thus, in the case of Stone versus Mississippi, cited earlier a franchise granted by the government in exchange for valuable considerations for the operation of a lottery by a private corporation was in effect revoked when the legislature subsequently imposed a prohibition on all kinds of gambling within the state. The measure was sustained although the term of the franchise had not yet expired. In the famous gold clause cases, the creditors in many contracts of loan, anticipating a change in the legal tender from gold to silver, stipulated with the borrowers that the loans would be repaid in gold currency even if the conversion did take place. As expected, the United States ultimately converted to the silver standard, the law providing for the discharge of existing money obligations through payment in the new legal tender dollar for dollar. The creditors objected, claiming an impairment of the obligation of their contracts. The U.S. Supreme Court sustained the law holding that the subject of the contract being currently being currency which was within the exclusive power of the legislature to control the agreement was subject to modification by the state in the exercise of the police power. In the leading case of Rutter v. Esteban, the Philippine government declared by executive order of the president and later by congressional enactment a moratorium on the payment of pre-war debts until after eight years from the settlement of the war damaged claims of the debtor. The law was annulled by the Supreme Court as violative of the impairment clause. The court declared that to begin with the emergency caused by the war that earlier had justified, the moratorium was no longer existing. Secondly, the period was oppressively long, extending over a period of four years when the executive order was in force and another eight years as provided under the law during which the creditor could not enforce his claim. Finally, during the moratorium, all the rights of the creditors were suspended, including the right to collect interest on in the principal of the loan as long as it 
as it remained unpaid. The court noted that in the United States, the usual period of moratorium did not extend beyond two years, and during this period, all the rights of the creditors, except only the right to collect the principal of the loan, were continued in force. In Illusorio versus Court of Agrarian Relations, the issue was whether a pre-existing share tenancy contract could be validly converted by the tenants into leasehold tenancy in accordance with the provisions of a subsequent law. The Supreme Court held this was allowed because the prohibition contained in constitutional provisions against impairing the obligation of contracts is not an absolute one and is not to be read with literal exactness like a mathematical formula. Such provisions are restricted to contracts with respect to property or some object of value and confer right which may be asserted in a court of justice and have no application to statutes relating to public subjects within the domain of general legislative power of the state and involving the public right and public welfare of the entire community affected by it. They do not prevent proper exercise by the state of its police powers by enacting regulations reasonably necessary to secure the health, safety contracts may thereby be affected for such matter cannot be placed by contract beyond the power of the state to regulate and control them. In Ortigas and Co. versus P.T. Bank, two lots sold by the petitioners on condition that they were to be used only for residential purposes were subsequently acquired by the respondent which started erection of a commercial building thereon. The petitioner sought to restrain such construction on the strength of the stipulated condition, but the respondent invoked a resolution adopted by the Municipal Council of Mandaluyong declaring the area in which the lost were located a commercial and industrial zone. The Supreme Court upheld the respondent ruling that the zoning resolution had been adopted in the exercise of the police power, which was superior to the impairment clause and so could modify the provisions of the contract of sale, rejecting the challenge to BP number 22 on the ground that it contravened the impairment clause. The Supreme Court said in the Lozano case, we find no valid ground to sustain the contention that BP 22 impairs freedom of contract. The freedom of contract, which is constitutionally protected, is freedom to enter into lawful contracts. Contracts which contravene public policy are not lawful. Besides, we must bear in mind that checks cannot be categorized as mere contracts. It is a commercial instrument which, in this modern day and age, has become a convenient substitute for money. It forms part of the banking system and therefore not entirely free from the regulatory power of the state. In Tiro versus Fontanosas, the Supreme Court declared that the government directive, which in effect discontinued the assignment of the salaries of public school teachers, to their creditor was not offensive to the impairment clause because the latter could still collect its loans after the salaries had been drawn by the employees themselves. In Ganzon versus Inserto, however, it was held that the clause would be violated by the substitution of a mortgage with a surety bond as security for the payment of a loan as this would change the terms and conditions of the original mortgage contract over the mortgage's objection. Remarkably, the change was made by a decision of the trial court which is not supposed to be covered by the term law as used in the impairment clause. In Article 12, Section 11 of the Constitution, it is provided that no franchise to operate a public utility shall be granted except under the condition that it shall be subject 
to amendment alteration or repeal with the Congress when the common good so requires. It is submitted that <clears throat> this reservation is not at all necessary in as much as the subject of the franchise is necessarily connected with the public welfare and so is embraced in the police power of the state. Like the police power, the other inherent powers of eminent domain and taxation may validly limit the impairment clause in Long Island Water Supply Co. versus Brooklyn, a private corporation contracted to supply the town of new lots with water for a period of 25 years. The town was later annexed to the city of Brooklyn, which then sought to expropriate the properties and franchises of the plaintiff. In sustaining the expropriation, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that the contract is property and, like any other property, may be taken for public use, subject to the rule of just compensation. The true view is that the condemnation proceedings do not impair the contract, do not break its obligations, but appropriate it as, as they do, do the, the tangible property of the company to public uses. This power, denominated eminent domain of the state, is as its name imports paramount to all private rights vested under the government, and this last are by necessary implication hold in subordination to this power and must yield in every instance to its proper exercise. Now, it's undeniable that the investment of property in the citizen by the government, whether made for a pecuniary consideration or founded on conditions of civil or political duty, is a contract between the state or the government acting as its agent and the grantee and both the parties thereto are bound in good faith to fulfill it. But into all contracts, whether made between states and individuals or between individuals only, there enters conditions which arise not out of the literal terms of the contract itself. They are superinduced by the pre-existing and higher authority of the laws of nature or nations or of the community to which the parties belong. They are always presumed and must be presumed to be known and recognized by all, are binding upon all, and need never therefore be carried into express stipulation. For this could add nothing to their force. Every contract is made in subordination to them and must yield to their control as conditioned inherent and paramount whenever a necessity for their execution shall occur. Such condition is the right of eminent domain. This right does not operate to impair the contract affected by it, but recognizes its obligation to the fullest extent, claiming only the fulfillment of an essential and inseparable condition. It has also been held that a lawful tax on a new subject or an increased tax on an old one does not interfere with a contract or impair its obligation within the meaning of the Constitution, even though such taxation may affect particular contracts as it may increase the debt of one person and lessen the security of another, or may impose additional burdens upon one class and release the burdens of another. Still, the tax must be paid unless prohibited by the Constitution, nor can it be said that it impairs the obligation of any existing contract in its true legal sense. On the other hand, where a law grants a tax exemption in exchange for valuable consideration, such exemption is considered a contract and cannot be repealed because of the impairment clause, all other tax exemptions are not contractual and so may be revoked at will by the legislature. Suggested reading for this, Stone v. Mississippi, 101 U.S. 814, Manila Trading Co. v. Reyes, 62 Phil 461, Rutter v. Esteban, 93 Phil 68, Norman v. Baltimore, 294 U.S. 240.